Ready? Okay. Hey, welcome everybody. Um, welcome everybody, uh, my usual uh, YouTube and Facebook followers and my TikTok followers. I decided to do some TikTok following today. I haven't been on TikTok for a while. I've been really busy setting up other stuff and working other projects, but uh, now I'm done with those projects. So this gives me a chance to do this. And the first one I'm going to do for you guys, and just to let you know, I'm going to be reading today. I'm going to be reading from a haunted themed book. I try to read once a week from a book that, that I get permission, of course, from the publisher and from the writer. And they're always paranormal themed. And this week, um, we're right, we're kind of in the middle, or not even in the middle, of a book by Anna Maria Manalo. And the book is based on a true story of a paranormal group that got called out to investigate a haunted, an old haunted mansion because it went through several owners. And one of the things that, that upset the owners was that they could not get any renovations done because the crews that were going and do the renovations would always come running out of there. They, they didn't want to spend any time there. So this group went in, and that's where we're at in the book, is the the first part of the investigation has just occurred where the paranormal team spent two nights there, and they had a lot going on. So that's where we're at, and so I'm going to read for about an hour. And so, I mean, even though you were trying to watch me on TikTok, again, um, I, won't, I can't talk back because I won't be seeing your comments, but I'm looking forward to you guys coming on. Also, I've set a goal, I, I've set a goal of 50 corgis. Uh, I got to pay the bills. Uh, I, I run this radio show Monday through, uh, sorry, Sunday through Friday. And I have expenses like internet and all that stuff. And I would really appreciate some help from everybody. Uh, that's why I've set up a goal of 50 corgis. Uh, see, see how close we can get during the read. You know, send me some. I mean, I, you know, I've only got like a couple flowers so far. But it would be nice to start funding my my ghost team and everything. It all goes back into the radio show. And back into my paranormal team for equipment and things like that. So um, here we go. And uh, let me set up a thing on my uh, computer here so that they can see my funding sources. Also, I do have, if you if you go to my profile, I do have uh, links to, to head over so you can double check everything and see that I have a PayPal and Venmo and stuff too if you want to do that. But I'd really appreciate any help you guys could give me. And that includes... Anybody watching on Facebook that hasn't followed me yet and, and enjoys the show enough to follow, that would be great. Hit that follow button and give me some likes. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm looking for likes and appreciation because the more likes and appreciation I get, and that goes for TikTok too, the more likes and appreciation I get, the higher up in the algorithm I go. Okay, and that also works for YouTube, TikTok, all the way across the board. So if you could find it in your heart to do that, I'd appreciate it as well. All right, so I'm going to get into reading this, and remember, I've got a goal set of 50 corgis, so that would be nice. Even even five corgis would make me happy. So let's see what we can do with this show and how many corgis I can get, okay? Because I really would appreciate it. And if you enjoy on TikTok, if you enjoy this show and, and you enjoy my my reading this, please be sure to uh, get, you know give me likes, maybe corgis or flower or, or roses or whatever you want to do. You know, show your appreciation. I'm just trying to get the most, the more likes to get up in the algorithms, just like I am on Facebook. So I'm on TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube right now. Okay. So I'm going to be reading this off my laptop. So I'm just trying to get adapted to doing that off the Kindle on my laptop. But it is a haunted book. It's a, and it's supposed to be a true story. My group didn't do this investigation. Somebody else did. But Anna Maria Manalo has given me permission to read the book along with the publisher. So uh, we'll continue. We're in chapter 26. So let me get started. Okay. Trevor snoozed on a lounger that looked like it had been salvaged from a junkyard. 
Just by his right elbow were the remains of tacos, nachos, and a heap of what appeared to be congealing slices of avocado and salsa. Flies flew around the food as a cat looked at the salsa, ignoring the forever-circling flies that landed on its orange-colored head. Well, let me get to where I can turn the page here. It's a certain thing I have to do to do it. I won't do it now. I'm on the air. Of course not. Why would it? There it goes. Okay. A sound woke Trevor from his slumber, and an empty bottle of cheap wine fell to the stained carpet, the cat dashing away. His bleary eyes focused like Elvis after a brawl. The hairstyle so that one eye was obscured, but the effect wasn't wasn't that of machismo, but like washed out denim in need of ironing. Trevor's eyes refocused on the chase, the burgundy and cream stripe on the fabric screaming antique in a sea of used and misused Kmart vintage. He grinned. He darted a furtive look at the statue of the horse and felt himself turn red at the thought of stealing. It looked great, even in the light of his trailer. Trevor grabbed a plastic cup, not quite awake, but almost in that zone of weariness that signaled his mind was becoming more aware of his pedestrian and lonely surroundings. He reached for a bottle of vodka by his elbow, nestled in the detritus of an ashtray riven with spent bullet casings and cigarette butts. He poured, then placed the bottle down as he sensed movement. As, as he sensed movement in the dimly lit room. Then he slowly stood as his eyes homed in on something that appeared highly irregular. Something moved in the periphery of his vision, but when he turned his head, nothing was there. He wondered if he had eaten something that didn't agree with him. Surely, he thought, he was hallucinating. He stared back at the plastic cup with the desolate liquid he had just poured and walked slowly to the nearby kitchen of pockmarked cabinets and formica counters. He turned the cup in his hands, deliberating on whether to pour the precious liquid down the drain. He glanced out the small kitchen window, the paint all fraying, the glass in need of a good Windex scrub. He gagged and aimed for the sink inches from his face. Hang on, guys. I'm trying to get this in the right spot. Doesn't help when the pop-ups go everywhere, but we're supposed to get them. Oh, come on. You just did it. Uh, give me, just bear with me till I find the, find the sweet spot to turn these pages. It's just not letting me, is it? Well, that's not good. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. Just bear with me. There it is. That is my sweet spot. Okay. Sink inches from his face. Oh, I see because it covered it. Ah, okay. Not supposed to see it do it again to me. Blind, dang it. Anyway, this is a book written by Anna Maria Manalo. If I can ever get the page to go, the thing keeps covering it up. But I got a pop up that keeps covering up where I'm supposed to turn the page. So I don't know why it's having me save it. Okay, there we go. He clutched his mouth, feeling something welling up towards his esophagus and close to his throat. Finally, like a dog that attempted to regurgitate its food. He yielded the contents of his stomach into a tiny sink, splashing the pot in the process, the greasy water hitting him in the eye, blinding in one eye, his lips wet from, from the vomit. He grabbed the napkin and wiped his mouth. There has to be an easier way, you guys. Okay. Come on. Okay. Okay, there it is there. 
He reached to wipe his eye, and something flew out of the napkin. Trevor looked and saw a large cockroach land on the sink. Then it flew. Ew. Trevor grabbed a fly swatter from the counter, following it. It landed on the striped antique chase, joining a bevy of roaches covering it, streaming to the ground. Finally found the happy spot. Eyes wide, Trevor stood aghast at the swarm of roaches covering the seat. He swatted the horde, and the entire swarm took flight. One entered his mouth as he gaped in surprise. He gagged, dropped the swatter, and bolted for the door. Outside, Trevor vomited the rest of his nacho dinner. Holding on to the railing of his trailer, he looked, dis he looked disheveled, frightened, and pale. He surveyed his neighbors, who were all inside their trailers. He inhaled, composed himself, then turned to enter his small chaotic home. In the dim light of the living area, he spotted a man in darkness sitting on the antique chase. He reached for the gun in the small of his back, aiming at the silhouette. He fired, but the gun was empty. Chapter 27 Midnight. John slowly made his way up to the attic, inspecting the rafters where he thought he had seen smoke materialize during the last vigil. He knew in his gut it was an entity, but also perhaps a replay of a fire, residential energy from a tragic event. He glanced up at the attic's rafters and noted that the wood towards the back... I got this now. I figured it out. Cool. Okay. I noticed that the wood towards the back side of the stately mansion was new. He hadn't noticed that before. He touched the wall opposite the stairs just below the roof and noted it appeared newer as well. The wood of a different vintage. What the heck? The house had a fire? He asked out loud as he, as he processed what he was now seeing with more, with more clarity. Yes, a, fe a feminine voice replied. John jumped at the sound, quickly surveying what was behind him. He involuntary shiver involuntarily shivered, sensing a presence in the attic with him. Close. Closer but not menacing. He touched the crucifix on his neck. He set the fire. It was unmistakable and not mimicking Sally this time. Who is he? Silence. Then suddenly, let me get this in the right spot. Then suddenly the temperature plummeted in the room. The lantern in his hand dimmed as if in reply, as if in reply. Something was compelling John to look up from his ministrations to turn up the lamplight. Finally, he turned on the lamp as he leaned down towards the floor. Larry had left it there just in case. A scent assailed his nostrils, a perfume scent. John yielded to the overpowering push to look up despite his willing fear. He was up there alone, as he had not intended to stay long. But he had yet to see what type of activity he was dealing with. A figure in the shadow, wearing a long gown with hair up on its head and a coif, stood in the center of the attic. That figure was standing with the dim light of the attic window behind it, framing it but shielding the features of the face and body. However, it was unmistakably the, vi the visage and slim figure, of a slim, slim figure of a young woman in a long dress from an earlier century. It remained silent, but John sensed it was staring right at him. He raised his crucifix, digging in his pocket for the vial of holy water. He repeated the question, dreading an answer from this vector. Who is he? 
Instead of a reply, he sensed a deep sadness and loneliness, then rage. John averted his eyes. His hairs had been standing all over his neck and head. He had had enough. He dashed down two steps at a time. Chapter 28. Before I continue, if you guys like what you hear, please please hit that like button. You know, please hit those likes. I'd really appreciate it. I also have a goal of 50 corgis today because I'm here to pay the bills. I mean, that's what I do. This is all I do. I do radio work and it's all nonprofit. And the only way this thing survives is because I, I end up paying all the bills for computers and everything else. So if you could do me a favor and help me out with my corgi goal, that would be great. I don't have to have 50, but whatever you could do to help me out would be, would be great over there. Everybody. Okay. So here we go. We continue. We're reading from Anna Maria Manalo's book, Unholy Structure. So lovely. But why so angry? Don't you like the ring I gave you? It's my mother's. Emeralds were a favorite. Do you mind the caress? Your dress is ruined. I'm sorry. You look wonderful. Supple. And I imagined, as I imagined you would be. Okay. So switch that. You don't have to cry. Stop crying. You woke up. That You woke up that old witch and made me do that. She's downstairs now with her head open. Look what you did. If you don't stop crying, I'll smash your head in. Those curls will be ruined. Stop. Stop. This is heavy stuff, guys. You're struggling. Where do you think you're going? Wait. You're not leaving. You biatch. I can't say that word right. You hag. Change it to hag. I won't get in trouble. You're leaving me. You're not going in that carriage. Never. Look down below. You woke up the kid. He's looking up here. I'm just reading what it's got. Chapter 29. Brent watched the dogs playing in the sunshine of his little farm. His wife had left for a day shopping with her frumpy sister, which was a relief. What an obese frump. He realized at that moment how much he detested his sister-in-law, who he thought was overbearing. Mind your own beeswax, he had said. His wife had overheard it. And now he was, a, he was in the doghouse with Will and Pooh, the two griffins, so to speak. The two dogs romped, playing with a frisbee, one folding it in half like a sandwich. Their webbed feet pushed and prodded the frisbee until it was filled somehow with mud. Content that all was well, Brent pulled away from the large fenced enclosure and walked up the paddock towards the two mirrors. His wife's passion. He reached for a carrot to offer to one, which it took. Eyes with long lashes, stirring back with love like a caress. The other horse approached to be petted. He handed her another carrot. Satisfied, Brent walked back towards the farmhouse, a study in butternut yellow and white trim. He had painted the house himself and was proud of it. Inside the large farmhouse, Inside the large farmhouse-style kitchen, with modern conveniences, Brent ran his free hand across the shiny surface of the granite counter as he pressed the coffee grinder. As the machine whirled, he stood with, he stood with his back to the large bay window, which afforded a view of the large paddock and dog corral. He busied himself with a cappuccino frother on his wife Barista Express. It was already 10.30 in the morning, and the whir of the machine always woke him up before caffeine did. The new owner of Blitz, the six-month-old griffin, was due to come around at noon. He wondered 
as he crushed the coffee beans if he should walk Blitz one last time and comb his thick fur. Hey, I'm getting better at aiming this thing. Okay. Griffins had two layers of fur. The downy and the soft fur, close to the skin and the wiry and coarse layer, which gave them their names, wired hair pointing griffin. A Dutch man, Korthals, had developed the breed to hunt. The breed was exceptional and never disappointed a hunter. With their quick wit, resilience, and high prey drive, equipped to swim in water, the breed had webbed feet for maximum efficiency in going after prey. The extra layer of fur equipped to withstand the water's temperature. Brent's two dogs were great show dogs, as they exemplified the breed so well. Will, the older of the two, exemplified speed and high prey drive. He'd had to pull the grouse off, uh, off the dog's the grouse off the dog's jaws the last time he was on a hunt with him. Brent opened a drawer fitted handsomely with the best of hardwoods, digging for the appropriate comb. He ran his fingers through to clean the dog hairs off the long steel comb and turned to look at the bay window. Outside, Brent watched, sipping his coffee, as Will and Pooh pranced and nipped at each other playfully. He mused as to their prowess and beauty, and then remembered that he had the massive femur, femur, I'm sorry, that he had the massive femur, still wrapped and leaning by the side of the truck. He stepped out the kitchen door, off the small porch that served as a back deck direct, back deck direct to his wife's vegetable garden, and decided he grabbed the bone before the dogs mistakenly thought it was a treat he'd brought home from the local feed store, but it was too late. Tired of the frisbee, Will had somewhere got a hold of the femur. Brent saw the large femur protruding from both sides of the dog's mouth. The blanket he used to wrap it in still lying nearby on the ground. How the dog got it, he would never know. Will ran, evading Pooh, who was trying to get that bone. Brent exited the kitchen and began running towards the corral. The gate was stuck. As he wrestled with the simple latch lock, he noted Pooh and Pooh had caught up to Will. Will dropped the bone, his cropped tail wagging, his stance showing play in the submissive posture. However, Pooh had other ideas. Pooh grabbed the bone and in one swift movement leaped over the corral like he had been trained as a show dog and was loose. Brent gave chase, unwittingly leaving the gate unlocked, the latch now open. He knew he was no match for the dog's swiftness and punched at his cell phone. Greg, Pooh's loose. Try to intercept him if you're still at the kennel. The kennel was downhill from the corral, a large roofed affair where he kept his new pups protected from the elements. The new six-month-old Blitz, now trained, was being bathed and trimmed by his farmhand Greg. Pooh was headed downhill in the direction of the kennel, and Brett hoped Greg was there to intercept the dog before it got to the main road, just a few yards from the property line. I see him coming, Greg replied on the cell. Brett sighed with sighed with relief, his legs pumping with the effort. He was winded from lack of exercise and sleep. From his vantage point, he spotted Pooh carrying the femur in his jaws, running full speed. Brent yelled a command, stay. Pooh kept running. Leave it. Pooh never paused. Aghast at the dog's lack of compliance, Brent kept repeating the command. Down below, he saw the road ahead and the figure of Greg. Pooh ran past Greg. Then finally, the dog paused, dropping the bone. Greg approached and picked up the femur. The femur. Pooh approached, his crop tail wagging. 
Ray grabbed the dog's collar, clicking on a leash with one free hand and dropping the femur. Brent sighed and slowed, panting. He darted downhill and approached the pair. At the periphery of his vision, he saw a speck approaching. It was Blitz, the puppy. In his haste, Greg, too, had left the kennel unsecured. Brent glanced at his watch. It was noon. A Chevy Traverse, gleaming white in the sun, had just turned into the farm soul road. Blitz's new owner coming to pick him up. Just a few yards ahead, Greg returned to find Blitz behind him, heading for the bone. Blitz, smaller than Pooh at six months, grabbed the femur and ran back towards the kennel. Above them, in the corral, Will had exited the gate that Brent had unwittingly left open in haste to retrieve, the, to retrieve Pooh. I don't like where this is going. Will dashed in pursuit of Blitz, intercepting the puppy. He was barking like a hunting dog in pursuit. Chapter 30 Trevor stopped in his tracks, awestruck by the undefined figure sitting in the dim recesses of his trailer. He tossed the empty gun in exasperation. He looked around for his rifle, then realized it was hidden under a sofa. He would have to pass the intruder in order to get to it. Who are you? Silence. The figure in shadow appeared unmoving. Get the heck out of my trailer, butthead. Silence. The figure remained seated on the chase. Trevor backed away, surveying him. The neighborhood was dead silent. Something familiar. Let me see if I can hear. Okay, son. Something was familiar about the intruder. Something made him realize he had seen this phantom before. His mind was still woolly, dimming. His nausea still within his gut. He paused, backing away slowly so as not to allow the dizziness to overtake him as he searched for a weapon among the heap of tools inside the trailer. He spotted a crowbar. Quickly, Trevor dashed for the tool leaning against one of the posts at the side of the trailer where, they had, where, where he had vainly planted a small garden. He almost lost his balance in the process. He grabbed it and turned, edging up the wooden incline which he had built for his handicapped mother. He was sweating. He reached to wipe his hand on his pants and realized he had peed into his shoes. Trevor held a crowbar with both hands and leaped to face his open door. Come on, you... Come on, you get this. The chase was empty. Trevor looked again and again in disbelief. Where did the man go? Then he heard something. It was not his clock since it didn't work. Tick, 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 tick. Tick, tick. Suddenly, he realized that the, ticking, that the ticking sound was a gas stove in the small galley kitchen. It was on, and the pilot was off. It was his way of conserving gas. Come on, he yelled to no one in exasperation. Trevor entered, dropping the crowbar as he reached the stove. He turned on the flue's light, and saw the two pilot lights on the stove were off. In his dimming mind, he reached for his, for his lighter to relight the pilot light. Whoosh! The stove caught fire, singeing Trevor's bangs. He screamed, grabbed the empty bottle of vodka, and turned on the tap at the sink. Then he realized the alcohol would only increase the flames. The kitchen was now on fire. He dropped the bottle and dashed out, slapping at his hair. As he ran down the steps, he saw, to his consternation, that the chase was now outside the trailer, sitting on the grass, 
yards away intact. As Trevor's neighbors emerged, one doused the trailer with water and another arrived with a pail of sand. Trevor surrendered to the grass, rolling into a ball as his head spun. It's going to explode. I'm, I'm, it's going to explode. And it did. Chapter 31. There was definitely a fire. The voice confirmed it for me without my having to ask Jerry. I asked him later, and he didn't know. There had been a tragedy here involving a woman in a period dress of sorts. Another woman who mimicked Sally's voice. A man, and God knows what else. What else revealed itself on our second overnight, sending us to rethink our options. We were now at wit's end. As a team, we'd never been so confounded with all sorts of complications and a myriad of so many events. When the other people sought out our, our help, our experiences counted. Our expertise was respected. In this one, we were forced to bring back recordings, both visual and audio. The first one, only one camera had yielded a video for the entire night. This one, I thought and hoped would yield more. But there were now more manifestations, more than I had ever seen in a haunted site. The second overnight had been long and terrifying. We decided that we needed to return the following Saturday to place a camera in the basement with an EVP recorder. Sally asked me why, and I left it unanswered. Afraid she would finally back out. Halfway through the second overnight shift, Scott, who took over my position in the kitchen, reported a kid, a boy he thought about 11 years old, running down the hallway when Scott left his post to take a break. Scott followed the boy in pursuit, thinking somehow that some kids were prowling the property. As Scott ran down the hallway, lights, now partially installed by the crew, down the hallway, lights now partially installed by the crew, he saw the kid dash through a door we had thought was, clo was a closet. He blinked several times as the boy went through a wooden door. Scott's, heart's th Scott's heart thumped in his chest as he approached the door. This is a true story of what, of what an investigation team back east experienced. Gingerly, Scott opened it to discover a yawning darkness below. Then a wind blew from below, bringing with it the unmistakable scent of, pu of putrefaction. He backed away as a force seemed to hold him and attempt to push him down the steps. Then, laughed, then laughter. He turned to his left, where one of two dining rooms sat in still, in still opulence, at the end of a short hall. Lights were blazing, and he reported the sounds of china and, sh and, sh and silverware clinking as if a party were in progress. Scott, riveted to the sound, had trouble processing what he was witnessing. He even smelled food, distracted by a more inviting experience. He, he even smelled food. Sorry about that. Distracted by a more inviting experience, he approached the, he approached the open uh, dining area, noting the chandeliers were on. Laughter continued. He yelled out, thinking it was us having some type of party without him. He was getting ready to share his terrifying encounter with the boy Spectre. Scott stepped into the threshold of the room. As he did, the large room plummeted into silence and darkness. Rooted to the spot in shock, his mouth gaped open. Then he found his feet. He ran. Scott told me later he had to take his mother to a home and would have to be gone for a while. 
I knew somehow it was his way of gracefully bailing out, as his mother was already in her was only in her fifties. Third overnight, my plan was to stay. Third, though, on the third overnight, my plan was to place a camera right in the basement door with an EVP recorder right in the center of the second dining room. For the first time in twenty years of investigating, I found myself dreading going down to the basement and placing more recorders there. Ryan said he'd go down with me during the day, but not at night. Larry said he would go if, if we all went. So, collectively, we all decided to go down together at the start of the third overnight. Of course, we had to wait a week, as we all worked taxing jobs during the week until the weekend again found us here. This time, Sally would be alone in the van, as we were one man down. That was today. An hour before we were scheduled to leave in the van for the mansion, I got an unexpected call from Jerry, the foreman. He was out one guy too, one of the haulers of the attic crew. Would we come a bit earlier to help to help the last guy, as he needed to finish up and was too old to carry out the rest. Thus, we left sooner than we expected. Always willing to lend a hand, we decided to wait on dinner. We decided to wait on dinner until we'd arrived and gauged how much time it would take to help out with the attic. As Ryan drove the van with me next to him, Sally and Larry in back, I noticed all the lights around the mansion set up by the construction crew. It was like broad daylight at 7 p.m. Most more things during the week must have happened since that terrifying Saturday night. There was Ed, the old man, wearing his standard painter's pants, stained with all kinds of paints like a, like a tie-dye. He stood there, his back to the mansion, as if afraid to gaze that way. It looked like he was petrified even from a distance. He was carrying a large cooler as if armed for a picnic, which he hoped contained some water for us. When Ed saw us, he approached the van, looking even more tired and a bit distraught. Ryan shut, shut off the motor and told Sally behind me to stay in the van to power of the monitors. Thank God she did. You don't want to hear this, but I think you should know, Ed said. Ryan and I looked at each other. Ryan spoke first. Tell us, please. The other dude, Trevor, what's his face? Yeah. He's in the hospital with second-degree burns on his face. I looked up at the attic. Another fire? Hang on a second. I got to hit this just right to turn the page. Okay. Ed pointedly looked at me. The darn place. This place, it's cursed. Behind Ed, I noticed the striped red and cream chase that they had loaded into the container at the beginning of our second overnight. It was sitting right outside the open container. Ed read my mind. Yeah, that's what he gets for trying to take that chair. Would you believe it? Where was the fire? Ryan asked as he surveyed the mansion's upper floors. Not here. The dude brought the chase home to his trailer. I saw him at the hospital as it was near my house. What? He tried to steal it, I asked? Yep, but as soon as he got in his living room, the trailer caught fire, and that darn thing st stepped out by itself, Ed replied, his eyes wide open. Both Ryan and I eyed the chase, which appeared almost brand new. Please, I just want to get done and paid. I don't need this, Ed begged. I approached the chase, grabbed it with one hand, and hauled it into the container. I signaled to Ryan and Larry. Ryan darted the open door of the mansion. 
and we proceeded up to the attic. Larry had to go around the mansion to set up the equipment by himself. It was going to be another long night. Chapter 32, Late Spring. We're going back in time, 1790. Again, we'll pause here. Uh, welcome everybody from TikTok who's joining us today. I really appreciate it. Every weekend, I one day on the weekend, I read from a haunted or paranormal themed book. This is uh, the unholy, the, the, un, the unholy structure by Anna Maria Manalo. It's based on the true story of a paranormal group, not my group, that went out to um, do an investigation at well, a haunted mansion, actually. And uh, this is the this is the story as related to Anna that of what happened there. Now, um, like I tell everybody, if you like what you see today on, uh, on all the things that I'm on, TikTok, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, please send me some likes. Hit those hearts. Hit those heart buttons for me. Let me know you like this. Also, uh, you know, I'm looking for some do donations on TikTok over here. I've, um, you can help me out to help pay the bills. I've got uh, Corgi uh, goal up there. Uh, let's see if we can get at least 10 Corgis. 10 Corgis would be great, you guys. If you could help me out with some corgis, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Continue. I've got blood all over me. My britches, my boots, everything. That darn dog bit me too. How did he get in? He must have been a hungry dog. But I got that kitchen cleaver that I had been admiring when we were dying downstairs. Oh yeah, I knew this was going to go bad. Carved hens, ducks, and wild boar. It came in handy. But now the tub's full. Oh boy. I'm an animal lover, so I don't like to hear anybody picking on, picking on dogs. I can't tell them apart. His limbs versus the noisy chambermaid's limbs versus the fat old bag who used to act like she's, she's her mama. I think the butler has a dog. It kept scratching the walls of my bedroom. What a pest. Would you believe that after all the meat I carved up, I was famished, totally thirsty, and hungry? So I decided, so I decided on some hunk of her thigh. But I wasn't sure anymore, as the maid was in there too. Wait for the night to descend. I've got a lot of bearing to do after that huge party downstairs is over. Or should I just dump them back in the woods? That would smell like a barbecue pit. I'm really famished now. Yikes. Chapter 33. <laughs> that was a fun chapter, wasn't it? <laughs> Whoa. Brent ran as fast as his legs would take him to the truck. He was torn as the truck was not, not as close, but he had to intercept Will. His thoughts to the last minute were, would he tear the dog apart? As Brent entered his truck, he saw at the periphery of his vision the Chevy Traverse parked by the kennel, which was now empty. Greg the farmhand was running on foot, pursuing Will. Will, pursuing Will. Legs pumping, the puppy ran. The large femur in his jaw was weighing him down. A lot. Eventually, Brent gunned, gunned the truck towards Will and the puppy, but it was too late. In one swift movement, Will grabbed Blitz by the scruff of the neck, shaking him like a mother to her pups, disciplining them. But this one was different. The puppy dropped. The femur went limp. Will continued to shake the puppy as Brent approached, yelling, screaming for Will to stop. Finally, the dog dropped the puppy. It was dead. Greg stopped dead in his tracks a few feet away, still holding on to Pooh's leash. The dog was whining. Greg breathlessly looked on it, looked on aghast. Behind Brent, the new owner, a man in his thirties, and his wife approached in horror. The woman screamed. Froth in his mouth, Will ran for the kennel. Brent grabbed the femur, then dropped it. 
It was soaked in blood. Chapter 34, Saturday, 7.15 p.m. Ed led the way into the dusty attic partially lit by construction lamps. Outside, the sun had begun its descent towards the horizon. A few more hours of light. John dimly wondered how far the electrician was, was getting before he had the electrical service completely hooked up. It would help dispel the gloom and the dependency on the generators. He hadn't heard, he hadn't heard from Jerry and suddenly realized the electrician's truck hadn't been parked there when they entered the driveway. Perhaps Brent was off for the weekend. Larry shined his flashlight on the back stairs going up following Ed, with John at the rear. The scent of sulfur was definitely more pronounced as they went up to the attic. A pervasive gloom and loneliness hung in the air. The large attic was almost empty, save for several boxes, some statues, and a claw-footed tub that sat in the center. John turned to Ed. Are we clearing everything here, or just the furniture? Everything, I'm told. Okay, maybe we'll start with the boxes. Ed scratched his head. I can't take the boxes. Someone needs to grab the tub. Larry approached the tub, assessing its weight. He attempted to lift one side, straining. John glanced at it, noting it was the tub that Trevor had some bizarre experience with. That explained. That explains Ed's presence, which also helped to hasten the evacuation of the antiques and trash in the attic. John walked over and grabbed the other end of the tub. Ready? He lifted, but ended up straining. I think we need a dolly. Something, Larry added, looking around the attic. He spotted a wagon of sorts, a child's toy, it appeared. That's not going to work. Too small, John commented. He glanced at the tub, the mold pronounced at the bottom. Then, as he eyed it, an overpowering smell of death surrounded him. He gagged. The last time he'd seen it, the bottom had been white and gleaming with some telltale dust. Do you guys clear the place of dead animals? That would be Trevor, Ed commented. Oh, did you guys clear? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Did you guys clear the place of dead animals? That would be Trevor, Ed commented. Well, it still smells like. Ed, come over here, Larry said as he, as he stood by. As he stood by the tub, Ed walked over, arms laden with boxes. What you want? Did you guys move the tub or anything? Nah. The other dude avoided that, you know. I do. Did you scent anything while while you were here? John prodded. The old man looked up at them quizzically. You mean like that wolf at the third floor window? No, sir. No, I meant the tub. Ed approached the cloth for the antique, looking over the boxes in his arms. He stopped suddenly and backed off, falling to his back. The boxes fell as he fell. Get me out of here. Ed gathered the boxes as Larry helped him. What happened? You all right? Larry queried. Dang it. Got pushed. Something just pushed me. Ed grabbed at the boxes and in triple time made it to the stairs. I ain't staying and I don't care. John glanced back at the tub and signaled to Larry. They lifted and pulled and tugged. The tub stayed put. But, I'm sorry, the, <laughs> I'm like down a paragraph. The tub stayed put as if glued to the front door, as if glued to the floor. Larry, like John, was strong. He looked up, perplexed. Then a horrible smell of rot assailed them. Let's go, we're done. John followed Ed, who was almost running down the steps. Yeah, this is a lot. Chapter 35, three hours later. 
This is a lot for a paranormal team. I'll tell you that right now. I've been doing this for 20, for almost 25 years. This would be a lot. Sally sat alone in the van, wrapped in a blanket. She wasn't cold, but somehow felt chill inside the van. It was about 65 degrees outside, but she felt as if she was coming down with something. Something made her jittery tonight, almost an anxiousness that she couldn't quite shake. She felt it might be the amount of coffee that she drank at the diner, but she always drank that much, even let me get this going. Even when she was at work. The coffee cleared her head and kept her fully awake. Sally knew she was on edge, more so than what the shift would warrant. She'd been kept behind the scenes, almost protected by John after her encounter with the man at the hospital. Since then, things were smoother. Okay, hang on. If I could just get this mouse to go where I want to go, I'd be fine. Okay. And she was ready to take on more patients in her usual ward. Tonight, however, the anxiety among the crew with Scott's departure after his unearthly encounter ratcheted up the team's collective angst. Then Ed's hasty departure after his comment of being pushed in the attic just put the group over the top. Over dinner at their favorite diner, the group huddled together like a football team, planning how to lay out the cameras and sound devices and then the basement adventure as her husband tried to refer to it. Dead bodies in the basement, Sally had commented jovially. A lot of nervous laughter ensued. It was not funny, considering it might be true. Considering she was normally a stalwart nurse, immune to apprehensions and concerns that plagued most people, but tonight somehow was different. It didn't help with how the old man, Ed, had now also departed. It appeared for good. His experience in the past hour of the first of the first two hours at that mansion had everyone at Nervous End, including Sally. Things were speeding up. The encounters becoming more frequent. Ed was the man who was brave enough to return after his experience alone in the third floor bedroom. After the men helped the old man close the truck container and secure it, the three men reluctantly went back to the attic to rule out any dead animal before they proceeded while there was still some light. No one found any animal carcasses or anything that would bring about the odor of putrefaction. But it wasn't just the scent of death, but the scent of raw sewage. John intimated to Sally, and there was no feces or even spots that would signal urine. The place was cleared and cleaned, every antique except for the claw-footed tub, which now sat alone in the center of the cavernous room. Now, alone in the van, Sally kept vigil on all the monitors. She checked and double-checked the EVP machines to make sure they were recording. To add to the anxiety, she overheard at the, din at the diner that the owners were getting impatient with them. John was concerned they would give them a bad reputation if they weren't pleased. If they weren't pleased with John's handling of the case. But the building was huge, the infestation very active, and Scott just quit. A banging woke her up from a reverie, the van's back door next to her. Yes? Silence. John? Now it's coming outside. Whoa. Sally paused. No reply. Ryan. Silence. Sally felt a sense of heaviness, almost to the point of vomiting her recent dinner. She dared not exit and enter the mansion in search of a bathroom. Her sense of, here we go, her sense of something waiting outside, menacing, hovering, about to grab her, was so keen she feared it would manifest if she chose to emerge. 
She calmed herself, inhaling and closing her eyes in meditation. The fear passed to a manageable point after some minutes. The nausea passed. Sally leaned forward past the monitors on the counter to part the flowered curtain at the small window, which was facing which was facing her. Slowly, she pushed to one side. Missed. She could hardly see the driveway. When they left earlier to grab dinner, the mood was already changing. Now that the sun was completely gone, the mood had turned funerally. She felt entombed, trapped. The van became colder. She pulled the curtains together. Sally sat back, staring at the window, wishing the stool she sat on had a back. She wrapped Roxanne's blanket snugly around her as if in protection, despite the heat. She turned to look at the back doors of the van, which she had locked. She checked the locks again. Reaching for the thermos, she poured some coffee, knowing she was now past her customary limit. As she sipped hot brew, her anxiety lifted even more. And she decided the place was playing tricks on her brain. She turned her attention to the monitors. The living room, the dining room, the hallways on the first and second floors, the, a third floor bedroom, a stairwell in the back, a bathroom John had used, the conservatory, then one camera facing up towards the basement door. Another bang. This time it came from the front, the passenger side door. Sally reached for the walkie-talkie, flicking it on. Before she, she could compose her question, Sally spotted the monitor by her elbow. The figures of three men, Ryan, Larry, and her husband, were cautiously walking down the hall in a line away from the front camera. There was a collective sense of trepidation in their gait, as if they were on their toes. Down the hall, toward the cameras, aimed at the basement door they went. Sally watched. She felt isolated, like miles away from the trio. She flicked the mic on. Everything okay? The men paused. They had heard Sally's voice over the walkie. Yes, you? It was John in reply. Sally looked up towards the front of the van, screened it by fine mesh, screened in by fine mesh. She toyed with the turnkey to the small window. She found herself afraid to look. She hoped the men had locked it before they left, as she would not be able to exit access it from the front of the van unless she walked outside. Sally got glued. Or sat got glued. <laughs> Sally sat glued, listening to more banging, four more banging. Seconds, then minutes passed. Silence. Yeah, I thought someone was out here, Sally replied. Vans locked in front, locked in the back, too. I did. Or lock, he says locked the back. She says I did. She sighed in relief. Sally turned on the monitor that was close to the basement door, resolved to ignore the banging, which had prevented her from giving the camera her full attention. The view was grainy, but she could see the men's strained faces as they stood outside the, base, the basement door. Ryan fiddled with the knob of the door, which Scott had opened after he saw or thought he saw a child walk through the wood. Ryan had a camera in his hand, and Larry had an EVP recorder and a lantern. John held a flashlight, shining it down on, on the doorknob as Ryan jiggled it open. Sally turned on the camera in Ryan's hand, meant to be planted in the center of the basement. The camera in Ryan's hand had showed complete darkness, the basement. A beam of light from the flashlight in below revealed wooden steps. She heard her husband talking. Let's proceed down slowly. 
Ryan, you go first. Larry, you light up the rear. I'll aim the flashlight around and check to see where we can lay down the equipment. Sally shivered as she watched the scene unfold. Only the lamp from the camera and the flashlight appeared to be lighting the basement. Otherwise, it was pitch dark. Chapter 36 If you like what you hear, be sure to send me some likes, you guys. Hit that, hit that heart button. Hit those likes. All right. Brett returned all the money, including the deposit to the couple. He was still in shock, uncertain as to how to deal with the older dog's unexpected brutal attack. Greg buried Blitz's mangled corpse near the edge of the woods, well away from any prospective buyers. He found himself sitting in the kennel, staring at Will, who sat in a large crate, well away from Pooh, who whined, let's see, get this going, who whined after his companion and former playmate from the other end of the kennel. The dog's doleful eyes evinced no suggestion of aggressiveness since the attack a few days ago. He just thought, after that savageness, that he couldn't trust the dog to be near Pooh. He had some ideas on how to test the dog, but not with another dog nearby. Brent stood, filling both bowls with water, placing one inside Will's crate, along with the toy the dog loved. Then he took the other bowl to Pooh. When he got to Pooh's stall, he clucked in greeting and opened the stall. He looked over his shoulder and spotted one of the horses, her mane shining from the light of the open window nearby. Brent put down the bowl. The dog laughed away and then licked his hand in gratitude. Don't worry. Boy, I won't put your brother down. The dog looked up as if surprised. I think something else is going on, but what it is, I don't know yet. Brent straightened up as he watched his assistant walking towards the stables to the next building. The horses were neighing. He could hear Greg talking to the mare, which appeared to be stomping her foot. Greg's voice continued in a murmur, attempting to soothe, attempting to soothe, but the horses wanted out. Brent exited the kennel, locking it securely this time. Both dogs appeared to be on high alert, as if they knew something was afoot. He darted over to the stables as one horse began stomping and leaping in a stall. Of the three horses, this one was the youngest at 15 hands high. Greg looked back at Brent. Something's gotten them spooked. Brent entered the stable, reaching for the horse's bridle, but it leapt away, evading his reach. She was kicking at the sides of the wall. Let's secure her. Greg tied a second knot to an opposite pole, holding her steady. The horse's eyes betrayed agitation. Brent, Brent looked down at the hay. It appeared fresh. The trough was filled with fresh water as well. He felt the horse's legs and hooves, one by one. Then, as the horse appeared to calm, he touched her sides, feeling for any irregularity. He walked in, he walked in front of the horse, talking softly to keep her calm. He, report, he repeated the process, gently touching the horse's flanks, feet, her sides. Then, just about done, Brent spotted a pail, and on it was something that protruded from behind a rag. Brent reached for the pail, bloody water. Then the rag fell. The femur, still stained with some of Blitz's blood, the horse neighed. It leaped in the air, narrowly missing Brent. Greg grabbed the pail and the femur. How'd that get in here? Brent, Brent pulled away towards the wall, avoiding getting stomped. 
Ray grabbed the bone, walked out with it. I'll put it back in your truck. Please lock it in. Brett looked back at the house, talking silently to the mare, soothing her. He glanced at the pail, at the figure of Greg walking away, and back to the mare. It's okay. It's gone. Brent grabbed a carrot, and the horse took it. He petted her mane, and the horse munched, admiring him. A look of apprehension remained with Brent. Greg carried the femur to the back of Brent's truck and threw it inside the shutting door. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the read as much as I did. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close TikTok out, and I really appreciate it. If you can uh, remember, if you like what you heard tonight, please be sure to follow me on follow me all across TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube, and show me some love. So you know, send me some hearts and likes and all that good stuff, because we're just trying to build up our, our rep here. We're just trying to build up our rep. I want to thank everybody, and I appreciate everybody coming to watching the show and watching me do this tonight. So uh, thank you all. So let me shut you guys down over here. If I can find the right button. I can't see you guys, so let me deal with this here. Make sure I got the right button. Okay. I'm going to come back with this. You get a really close view of me. So just hang in there. I think it's this one. What's it say? And yes, and. Okay, guys, see you later. Okay. All right. Now that that's taken care of, chapter 37 is our next chapter. Okay, gang, I hope you enjoy this reading this weekend. I really appreciate you guys coming, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., and we will have Michael Ford on, who's going to be talking about angels. So uh, have a good rest of your weekend, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Bye. <laughs>